and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with Carmen Wong, who is a Guyanese-born poet, playwright, and MFA student at the University of New Orleans. Wong is the current associate poetry editor of Bayou Magazine, and one of her poems was recently published by Antenna Press. Hey, Carmen. How's it going today? Hi, David. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. It is nice to spend an afternoon with a poet. Well, I don't hear that often. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) I'll I'll be the first then, uh, for today at least. Um, But to kind of dive in, one of the questions I really love to ask people is, specifically poets, is when did you write your first poem? I knew this question was coming. I started writing poetry, I think like most writers, at an extremely young age. I want to say about like eight or nine, I can remember me writing, playing around, dabbling with poetry a little bit. Um, But actually, my first published piece wasn't poetry. It was probably a short story, um, a genre I don't tend to write much these days, although I might find my way back into prose at some point. I was in love with the sound of poetry, so I'll start there. I loved listening to poetry before I even read it. I think I started reading poetry at such a younger age in life, and I wanted to figure out not necessarily how I could sound like that, but how I can write something that had such a nuanced and and favorable approach to the body. I felt like when I listened to poetry that was around me from poets, spoken word artists especially, it made me feel something. I I remember being in my first um, introduction to poetry workshop and I cried. (laughs) And I remember feeling like I want to make people cry. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that's great. Uh, you want that kind of like emotive, like cathartic kind of feeling to come yeah, out of that. Yeah, and, and now the goal isn't necessarily to make people cry, but I think to make people feel something, to know that it's it's possible to feel something and that um, it's okay to feel something, even when we don't plan it, when it's unhinged and unexpected and that those feelings that tend to be the most vulnerable are also the feelings we should cherish. Yeah, no, I I wholeheartedly believe that. Um, What was the first piece of writing that made you feel like super into it? Like maybe like not viscerally, but like uh, something like deep within, like welling inside of you? Yes, so I grew up in New York and while in New York, I got into a program called Girls Right Now, which is a nonprofit. I think they have one based in New York and in L.A. as well. And you basically team up with a mentor, and I was a mentee at the time, and they do workshops on different genres. So this had to have been at, like, the age 15 or so. And we were introduced to Rami Romano, who is now a sister and great friend, um, Mahogany Brown, and and a lot of spoken word artists. And, and some of them came in to speak at our workshop. And I remember just thinking whatever I was writing up until that point had never made me feel that way. Yeah. So I, I do remember um, Ramya, who basically invited me out and and I was able to see her perform and that kind of changed the way that I viewed spoken word poetry and I wanted to like be a part of that world. Yeah. 
No, I can totally see that. Um, what particular aspects of like spoken word do you really love? I am in love with the oral nature of spoken word poetry. Um, especially because I think that when we try to dissect it and we try to talk about it in these very technical terms, um, there's often this divide between the oral and the written language. And so for me, and a lot of what I study and what I do was trying to bridge that gap. And, and I'm not the first one at all. It's been uh, a process that we've been undergoing. But I think the thing that I love about spoken word is that in its very literal sense, it's also part of this wider sociological spectrum where we have to understand these people who are speaking, the communities that they come from and where they come out of. Mm -hmm. And so in the work that I do now um, as a poet and a student of poetry, for me, it's saying, how do we incorporate these things that were once and were still underground, right? Uh, I think that not many people can say they've been to slams or that they know what poetry slams are, um, besides maybe when we see things go viral or so. But as someone who has attended these spaces, you know that's completely different when you're sitting in the audience. And this idea of live poetry, being able to experience poetry. So for me, it's always been um, really playing on the importance of oral language just as much as we've been taught at such a young age the importance of the written language. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important distinction right there. Um, really well put. Um, I know you've brought one of your own poems. Yes. Uh, I'd love if you could read it for us. Yes, yes. I've been playing around, actually, with the idea of the palindrome. Um, and this is kind of... Uh, I like to say... It's a variation of a palindrome, maybe like a horizontal palindrome. Although when we think about palindromes in words, and I tell people, um, my example is like race car. You can spell race car backwards. It's a race car. But when we think of palindrome poetry, although there are some that stick to the word, um, that I was having a discussion about with my friend Trace Pass, another great poet. Um, definitely, we should all check him out. But I was having a conversation with him as I was um, fine-tuning the pieces here about poems that tend to, to stick to the words versus stick to the lines. And it was a very interesting conversation, knowledgeable, um, and that's with me learning, always being a student. Um, and so this poem turned out to be a palindrome of sorts in that sense. And it stemmed from an Instagram post um, by a Ghanaian uh, woman named, or she goes by I am Hamamad. And she currently lives, resides in Ghana, and she owns an African village there of which she helps produce shea butter, raw organic shea butter, and tends to have a lot of women workers there doing it just the same. And in the caption of her post, she was saying that people keep asking her, like, you have made it, you have money, why is it that you haven't bought technology to do this? Why are you still having women here hand make this shea butter and her response was saying that as long as you know her children are still in school and the children in her village um, are still 
in school that we can't afford to buy the productions, the industrial productions, to take away this labor from the women workers here because we have to support our families. And so she posted along with that a video of a woman who was kneading shea butter while also uh, breastfeeding her son. And so out of that sparked this poem entitled, In the Village of Hamamad. In the village of Hamamad, baby lips wrapped around areola, suckling breast, his hips wrapped around her one side, mother twirls the right, kneading raw butter, rest her limbs weary, her hand thick and moist, thick and moist, thick and soft and never tired. She is savior. Shaman of drying bodies, ashing away, skin that cracks outside the womb. She is healer and prophet and mother earth who's born of village hands restorer. Sucking milk, baby's head hangs off a nip, same as a child devouring a small mango seed after a school day's play. Sun out. Mother holds him in the left. She circles again her right hand. Every go-round, body rocking, breast slipping in and out, mouth wide in and out, mouth wider open and thirsting until he is fed. She will nurse this world just for him, restore life for someone else. Mother knows the way hands breed civilization like breast hold bodies. Mother is a figure round about back and forth motion, slow, still, but nothing steady. Sun out, hands churn, thick, thick butter, mixing and mashing, mushing and making a mark, a scented stamp, so seamless it seems. And so for the idea of a palindrome, I'll read it backwards. It seems so seamless, a scented stamp, a mark, mushing and making, mixing and mashing, butter, thick, thick hands, churn, sun out. Slow, still, but nothing steady, back and forth, motion, round about, mother is a figure, breed civilization like breast hold bodies, mother knows the way hands restore life for someone else. This world just for him, she will nurse until he is fed open and thirsting, mouth wider, in and out, mouth wide, in and out, breast slipping, body rocking every go-round, she circles again her right hand, mother holds him in the left, sun out after a school day's play, devouring a small mango seed, same as a child, baby's head hangs off a nip, sucking milk, restorer, who's born of village hands, and Mother Earth, she is healer and prophet, skin that cracks outside the womb, shaman of drying bodies, ashing away, she is savior, thick and soft and never tired, thick and moist, thick and moist, her hand rests, her limbs weary, kneading raw butter, Mother twirls the right, his hips wrapped around her one side, suckling breast, baby lips wrapped around areola, in the image of Hamamas. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for having That was a marathon for you. And I love the different kinds of resonances you get from reading it from the, the second way right there. And just the little things that you can pick up and the new meanings that you can take from it. But it's 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 still more of a translation of the original, you know, uh, downward slope of the, the reading. Um, what was the editing process like for that? 
very technical. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I decided as I was reading back through it, um, backwards from the bottom to the top, that there was something phonetically pleasing about it that was also uh, sensical. Yeah. And I don't think that often happens. When I counted the number of lines that made even the same amount or more sense uh, reading in reverse, I said, well, this, this is something that I could play with. So as far as the revision process, I realized I had to take out a lot of um, conjunctions that were starting lines. I was parsing syntax, um, things that sounded so clear and precise one way. It was it became more interesting to yeah. break that apart and maybe make it its own line or put that in between another line and find out how that can make even more sense reading it the opposite way. Yeah. It was it was fun. It was more fun than I thought it was tedious. I'll say that. That's good. That's always a good thing. <laughs> Especially when you're going line by line by something like that. But I think that's really cool because, you know, you're establishing very different rhythms than you would if you had those conjunctions, if you had those like the kind of connective tissue that you typically get in a longer poem like that, right? Yes, definitely. I mean, that I was thinking all about the sound, the rhythmic sound and how that would change. But also I was thinking about well, how does the story change if it does? And because this was something very inspired by something I saw and, and I really wanted to credit that as much as I could, I wasn't okay with the thematic shift too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe um, in the voicing, in the pacing, perhaps. But I wanted to make sure that my attitude about a subject matter that was very serious and, and close to me when writing it was not going to be uh, left out of the larger picture just because it was a cool way of doing poetry. Yeah, I I think that's really... That's good, because it's really easy to get outside of that intent, um, specifically with something taken from social media. It's really cool that you're attempting to frame it that way and holding that intent very close. Most definitely. Yeah. we got into communication with each other via Instagram. This poem yes. was inspired <laughs> by Instagram. Uh, how do uh, modern social media and ways of communication uh, interject with your work, if they do at all? Yes. You know, I always go back and forth, more so in my head, yeah. about social media. I think it's super cool, um, and I, I always jokingly say I'm waiting for the day where I can uh, be like Michelle Obama and, you know, <laughs> someone else can run your social media, and the only time it's really you on it is when you have to put your initials. So <laughs> I always jokingly say that, but like you said, uh, the way we were able to connect here, the way that I think poetry is able to become more accessible to audiences. Um, We see that in in other mediums as well, when we think about theater as well, when we think about theater goers and how that has changed over time. I think that it can be used for a lot of good. And much like language, uh, especially when we talk about the English language or a lot of Western languages, the job isn't the language itself, it's the people using it. Mm -hmm. And so I feel the same way when it comes to social media. It's it's easy to stigmatize media in general, but it's humans, it's people using it, and what are we using it for, and how do we, you know, wrap ourselves around that. I know for me, 
as I was getting more into my writing and more focused, I wanted to surround myself in every aspect, including social media, with everything that had to do with writing, particularly writing that I favor and that I like and that I want to see around. And so using it for that, I think that it takes a lot of self-discipline and a lot of courage even to reach out to people via social media, to share your stuff mm-hmm. via social media. Um, so, but I, I think it can be used in, in very inapt ways. And I think it can be used for a lot of good, um, more so than we maybe even give ourselves credit for doing. Yeah, because it's such a mixed bag, right? And what gets the most attention are the more negative aspects of it, right? But I mean, I'm, I'm a part of a lot of really vibrant and lovely online communities that I wouldn't have access to without a platform for it. Does that negate all the... Our, overshadow all the negative things? Maybe not, but it's a part of it, right? Yeah, most definitely. I think it's, it's kind of like texting. Yeah. You know, you never really know people's attitudes behind it. And then you get to, and I'm thinking of something like Twitter. I use Twitter a lot. Um, but I found it to also be a very receptive way to reach out to people that I would have never even you know, otherwise spoken to just by adding them and letting them know how much of a fan not only I am um, of their them, but also of their work. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's also figuring out what those barriers and parameters are when on social media, because it's definitely a difference between um, people reaching out and uh, wanting your support or showing their support versus people trying to be nosy or or really just uh, being a spectacle themselves um, and causing whatever social media havoc happens. (laughs) (laughs) No, I agree with that. Um, Speaking of a spectacle, and you brought up theater a little while ago, I know that you have written a couple of plays. Yes. Um, How did you get into playwriting? I got into playwriting. That was more recent. I got into playwriting While I was in undergrad at Howard University, and it really, it's a crazy story to tell. (laughs) (laughs) I ended up minoring in playwriting while I was at Howard because in order for me to take this playwriting class that I wanted to take, you either had to have majored in like some sort of theater. And I wanted this class so badly that I ended up making a whole minor out of it. And I think that I told myself at the time, um, as someone who tried to bring some spontaneity into her own academic life, that I could take this class. I was pretty sure I was going to love it. And that if I didn't like it as a minor, I would change it and just do away with everything. But luckily, that didn't didn't happen. And it brought me into a whole new world of writing, of thinking about audiences, Mm -hmm. um, that also brought me back into the world of live poetry um, in a way, like I said, that wasn't being studied and still isn't much being studied in the classrooms. Yeah, no, I think that's important. Um, That's really cool that that's informing your work right now. Are you still writing in that vein? Are you doing more kind of like hybrid work with that? Well, I... It's crazy. My whole writing, I think, has changed within the past year. Yeah. This is the second year in my MFA. And I find myself trying to break these binaries by incorporating prose into poetry or poetry 
into place. And again, nothing about this is new um, as I think back on works by like Sean Gay. And most recently, um, I was working on a choreo poem. So it is definitely trying to incorporate all types of artistic mediums. I mean, why not? I think that if we can, you know, create something that we never even knew we had in us, we'll never even know what more we can do and, and, and how that's useful to others who might not even know what they have in them. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that that's really important. And I, I love, like, kind of the uh, the mantra of, like, you know, why not? Because if you can make something experimental and find, like, an internal logic for mm-hmm. yourself and make it make sense, other people will make it make sense for them as well. And that that's really cool that you can have that conversation going with uh, really interesting forms and new ideas kind of flowing like that, even if they're not original and yes. nothing's really that original. Yes. So Definitely. The whole idea of experimentation has been something that is relatively new to me. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I just wanted to learn so much um, that I was just taking information in. I wanted to learn all about um, this era or this writer, their works, um, their forms. And so I was taking all of that in. And I think that um, while I'm still always taking things in, it's been a year of figuring out what it is that my voice sounds like um, that may call back to um, older writers, a lot of elders, but also brings a very um, new and sometimes provocative way of thinking um, that I think that I am very happy and, and, and satisfied with about uh, the risk that I take with my writing. Yeah. How would you describe that voice as it's developing right now? You know, <laughs> that is such a loaded question. <laughs> I am someone who finds myself playing with the English language often. Um, we didn't hear this in this poem, uh, but I actually thought about this in another poem I, I was going to bring in today. But oftentimes it's it's mixing words that aren't even real words. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it draws back to, I think, a lot of cultural heritage and um, being from Guyana and being very influenced by Calypso and Soka and steel pans and just listening to conversations um, that I had been taught you know, relatively early on that grammatically made no sense. Yeah. And I debunk that idea, and I and I do so even more so now, but I think even learning it um, at an early age, I was, I never agreed with that because for me, um, and so many of us, we're in communities with folks um, who are speaking things that not only we understand, right, but we get into a community of folks who also understand that verbiage. Um, And I think it's hard for people to talk about, especially um, creolized languages or whatever terminology um, they like to distinguish it as, to make some sense out of it. And I think that the truth is there has already been sense made out of it. Um, and that people are trying, I think, even more so now to uh, make it seem more nonsensical. Mm. Um, and so for me, and and going back to your question about what my voice is, it is saying that I don't have to live with the intention that um, majority 
of folks think that this doesn't exist, this can't work. It's me saying that it does work, it has worked, and that it 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 makes sense to a large group of people where I'm from. And so it's inserting a lot of where I'm from into my writing, whether that's through, you know, um, imagery or whether that's through sound or just uh, dialect. It To me, it's figuring out a place for that in my writing because I think that comes natural. And in the editing process for so long, it has made me strip myself of that. Yeah, no, I think that that's really interesting and really beautiful. And I always, I hate those arguments surrounding like, proper ways of speaking or like a traditional way of speaking when those same people who are staunchly for those ways are the ones most using like emoticons <laughs> are like memes and like, you know, like texting yes. and internet language in order to communicate because yes. it's, it's not functioning on a, on a, it's functioning in a similar vein, not in the same level, but in a very similar vein. I just, I can, I can never take people seriously with those right. arguments, right? And I think most people don't know this, but as much as I am in love with literature, I am in love with linguistics. I love thinking about um, languages and its origins, um, and the ways that even we have termed things like whether it's taking a selfie or, you know, these things that never really existed. And that's something we talk about in my African orator class as well, um, how these words come to be and how we come to use them and understand them um, before they're even uh, a lexicon in the dictionary or anything, how they become these very transient words yeah. in our in our daily speech and how we use them without even theorizing them, right? Mm -hmm. But when it comes to languages of people who have ancient languages, you know, people that have been around for so long speaking these languages, why is it that we take so long to get on board with that? Yeah, no, I think it's it's a, it's a huge contradiction. <laughs> it, yes. You know, the more and more you see these other ways of it appearing, it becomes more and more apparent just how big a contradiction it is. You had a chance to uh, take a seminar with Nikki Giovanni. Yes. Uh, last year or was it this year? That was this past summer. Oh, wow. How was that? Oh, my goodness. If I get I to answer that, if I could do it again, I would. Yeah. OK, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> it was so amazing. I was able to um, receive a fellowship with the Furious Flower Poetry Center. So shout out to everyone out there. I mean, I loved being around Nikki Giovanni and everyone who admired her just the same. Um, but I also love that it was a space to not only be around poets, but to be around scholars, um, people who either taught poetry um, or study poetry or do all three. Yeah. And so it was it was amazing to just listen. I mean, literally sit at the feet of someone like Nikki Giovanni, listen to her recite or say her poetry and learn so much to be able to to engage with literature so closely in front of the artist who is legendary yeah. um, and a living legend at that. Yeah, no, I think that's really cool that you get to do that. Yes. Yeah. Um, you are in your second year of your MFA, as you, you said before. Um, how's the experience been for you thus far? You know... It is a growing experience. I I encourage people to go after what it is that they want. I think for so long, we have taught people that they can't make a living out of art. 
And so we get to these spaces of higher ed and we don't, I think that it's limited in the, the types of people that we see. And I don't think that a lot of people know that this is something that you can venture after. For me, it's been a growing experience. I studied playwriting, as we said, in undergrad a lot more technically. And so I got into this um, MFA world of poetry and I was like, I mean, I listen to poetry, I watch poetry for so long, but how do I talk about it, you know? And then it's been, especially coming from a place like Howard, um, it was a lot eye-opening to read different types of poetry that maybe I wouldn't have regularly picked up. So yeah. I think I think it's really cool. I will say that I just encourage more people to apply because I I would love to see a lot more um, diversity in gender, in um, cultures, in experiences in ages specifically i remember entering and i was like oh my gosh i'm, I'm a baby here um, <laughs> but realizing that i was so equipped with the knowledge because i had been studying this thing for so long i had been writing and i had been performing for so long that for me i'm at a point where i want to not say that this is the best way or anything for any artist but to say that there is space for you here And I don't think that we often say that, you know, to a lot of emerging artists that are like me, that are coming from Southside Jamaica, Queens, um, that are coming from these very, um, quote unquote, urban neighborhoods that, um, you know, never even knew she can go to college, better yet, grad school. And so for me, I'm I'm constantly in this space thinking about writers and students um, like that. Yeah, I I think that's great. And I know um, one of the things that my my friends who have gone through MFA programs or other arts programs like it, um, it's kind of building that network, building a cohort. And I know we have a mutual friend, Sky Jackson, who we both very much appreciate, uh, both her and her work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's really interesting to get to meet people like that um, and to build relationships with people like that and see that. So I think that's really cool. Most definitely. You know, I, I'm so grateful to have someone like Sky, as she mentioned, um, Swiss, who is also in our cohort, and Isaac, and, and to be with a cohort of people who are, I think, experimental in their work and their craft, who value oration in their own writing um, or reading as well. Um, And I do understand, um, as I'm navigating this space, how that isn't always offered in in many programs um, and how I think privileged I am to be in a space where I can have writers who look like me and um, at at least in my cohort um, and who understand, especially like I was saying, hearkening back to understanding uh, creolized languages, and, and I'll say that in reference to when we talk about a lot of like West Indian English, um, Guyanese verbiage, for example, that oftentimes you bring that into a classroom setting and people are like, what are you talking about? You know, um, but I don't feel like I have to feel that way here. Um, but it does it does make me wonder about, you know, people who are maybe not in that setting, um, who don't have that luxury and and how it is a daunting thing, you know, to have to think about 
um, censoring your own craft or your artwork um, before you're able to share it. Yeah, I think so. And the sheer negation that can come out of that if you don't have um, a space for that, too. Most definitely. Yeah. Well, well thank you for, for sharing these thoughts. Um, our time is sadly at an end. One question I ask everyone to kind of end these interviews is, um, what are you reading right now? And also, uh, what are you working on? What's on the horizon? Oh, my goodness. Well, I am re- connecting with my love for Edwidge Danticott and Tanya Shirley. And I'm really just re-reading a lot of Caribbean literature and Caribbean American writers um, as I try to continue to explore my journey as a writer. Um, and I am, I mean, doing the work in terms of writing poetry, writing plays when I feel like uh, they're coming to me, but also um, applying to conferences and a lot of other um, professional scholarly um, settings where I think that we can have a lot more of these conversations. So I'm so thankful for you inviting me here and allowing us to talk so candidly. Oh, of course. I, I appreciate it. Uh, if people want to keep up with you, where can they find more information? So I'm actually revamping my website, and you can find me online at thecarmenwong.com. That's Carmen with the I. So that's the C-A-R-M-I-N, last name W-O-N-G, dot com. And I'm also on Instagram at Dear Brother Malcolm. That's brother with an A. Thank you so much, Carmen. Thank you. That was Carmen Wong, poet, playwright, and MFA student at the University of New Orleans. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. and on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. This interview, as well as WRBH's other interview programs, can be found online all the time at our SoundCloud page, which is located at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio, as well as wherever else you get your podcasts from. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.